This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com. This podcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this podcast is intended to be considered as advice. Hello, and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. Our special guest is Brian Westbury, Chief Economist at First Trust Advisors LP. Brian was a member of the Academic Advisory Council of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago from 1999 to 2007, and has been a regular attendee of the Economist Roundtable Luncheon at the Chicago Fed since 2007. In 2012, he was named a fellow of the George W. Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, Texas, where he worked closely with its 4% growth project. His writing appears in various magazines, newspapers, and blogs, and he appears regularly on Fox, Bloomberg, CNBC, and BNN Bloomberg. In 1995 and 1996, he served as chief economist for the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress. The Wall Street Journal ranked Brian the nation's number one U.S. economic forecaster in 2001, and USA Today ranked him one of the nation's top 10 forecasters in 2004. Brian began his career in 1982 at Harris Bank in Chicago. Former positions included vice president and economist for the Chicago Corporation and senior vice president and chief economist for Griffin, Cubic, Stevens, and Thompson. Brian received an MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg Graduate School of Management and a BA in economics from the University of Montana. McGraw-Hill published his first book, The New Era of Wealth, in October of 1999. His second book, It's Not As Bad As You Think, was published in November of 2009 by John Wiley & Sons. Without further ado, my conversation with Brian Westbury. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it's uh, great to be with you. We've been reading your weekly notes, and they're always very informative and very insightful. We're delighted to have you on. Thanks, Pierre. It's great to be with you. It's crazy times, but we're just we're stuck with it right now. There's nothing anybody can do. One of the things that we really like about your research and you as an analyst is that you have a great way of combining history and philosophy with the economy. Right. Market. I mean, you do it in such a way that's very relatable. You point to parts of history and philosophical ideas. And so I'm excited to have this conversation. Before we get started, I think it would be helpful if you talked about your background, how you developed your methodology, your analysis. Mm -hmm. A little bit of my, I guess, my history is I've been an economist, a forecasting economist for 35 years. My first job was at the Harris Bank in Chicago, which was bought by the Bank of Montreal while I was there. Uh, And I I will tell you, my first job, I was the assistant to the assistant. So I have worked uh, from the bottom up. I started uh, literally keeping data by hand on cards and then making charts by hand that we sent to the printer. My uh, boss was Bob Janetsky. He was one of the original supply-siders in the United States. I met Arthur Laffer, Larry Kudlow, Jude Winiski, Jack Kemp, all of these original supply-siders way back in the early 1980s. So a lot of my approach to economics came from them. Milton Friedman was also very influential in that office with my boss and with myself. And one of the books that I read that changed my life was The Road to Serfdom 
by Friedrich Hayek, a Nobel Prize winner. He's an Austrian economist. And, and basically, when you lived in Austria in the 1930s, they had a firsthand view of the rise of Hitler in Germany and the politics that surrounded that. And so really what he wrote about was freedom and why socialism didn't work, et cetera. And that's where I came up. So a lot of reading, a lot of, 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 of really tight-knit communication with this group of supply-siders. And just to give you a, and anyone that listens an idea of where I'm coming from and what supply-side economics is all about is that Keynesian economists, that's the alternative, really believe that demand spending drives growth, whereas supply-siders believe, no, it's entrepreneurship, it's invention, that new things come into the economy and the growth of the economy is driven by entrepreneurs. And there's a, a law called Say's Law. Jean-Baptiste Say said that supply creates its own demand. And we could go deeply into right. that, but that's really where I'm coming from in my philosophy. Brian, we're in this remarkable period right now. I mean, we're five months into this pandemic, and I've had a chance to listen to a lot of the things that you've had to say about the economy and the state of the economy. What, what are some of your most valuable findings on the current state of the economy that you've had in the context of where we are today? In the, we're now mid-August right. uh, 2020, and like I said, we've had about five months, five full months of the uh, pandemic, the shutdown, the reopening. Now that we've had some time to digest the, the goings-on, what are some of the things that you've discovered that are remarkable? To go back to the very beginning, we always said, I, I guess I always said, when looking at the economy, that this was not a normal, and, and this is obvious to anybody who's looking or listening, it's not a normal recession. Normally, recessions are caused because the Federal Reserve raised interest rates too much, or back in the 19, 1930, we passed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which caused a global, literally global trade war and a shutdown of global trade. Then this time, it's all because we just shut down the economy. We were hiding from a virus, and we thought that the best way to do that, I think, in, in retrospect, when we look back from the future, we're going to find out this was a, a big mistake because it's going to hurt long-term wealth creation a great deal. But we'll come back to that in a minute. But we always thought that this was going to be one of the deepest, but one of the shortest declines uh, in economic activity uh, that the world had ever seen. And it's playing out that way. The second quarter was just ugly. There's no other way to put it. When you lock down businesses, when all of these people go on unemployment around the world, the, the numbers were awful. In the United States, we always report things here, annualized numbers. So we had a 32.9% annualized decline. And if you back out and just look at the quarter, it was a 9.5% drop uh, in GDP for the quarter. Other countries saw very similar things. Sweden was a little bit better. The UK was worse. Canada was a little bit worse. It looks like, even though we just have monthly data so far. But and and then what? As we reopened, the numbers have gotten become a lot better. 
right now, our forecast for this uh, third quarter in the United States is that we're going to see somewhere between 15 and 20 percent annualized growth, which works out to you know somewhere between three, three and a half to five percent for the quarter. So it's been very quick, and it's going to take time for us to get back to normal. If that's what if we want to call four percent unemployment normal, we don't think we're going to get back there till. 2023. And and then let me just add one other thing uh, about this. E- e- an economy the it is a very complex thing. If you think about just the price of a tomato, think of all the, the things that we have to do to get a tomato onto your, onto your kitchen table. Right. Uh, we need trucks, we need farm equipment, we need refrigerators, we need grocery stores, we need, there's hundreds of millions of pieces of of the economy that go into getting that tomato. And when you turn off the economy, you destroy a lot of that information. And we're actually, we're going to lose a lot of small businesses. And that's why this is going to, you end up killing cells, if you will. It's like radiation uh, to fix cancer. When we shut down the economy, we actually hurt the, the economy, and, and it's going to take a long time to get back to normal. And I think that's when we look back on this, we're going to see that this was a very damaging thing to do. It's unlike any other time in history, right? There's never been a full-on shutdown of the economy. Yeah, I, maybe back in the Spanish flu, we there were certain cities where they put quarantines into effect. And if you go back to the bubonic plague and the in the Middle Ages, they would lock cities in behind the walls. We've never seen, in my knowledge of all of history, a complete shutdown like we have done this time. And what's interesting is it, it's really not a complete shutdown. A lot of people look at the stock market and they go, how can it be doing so well? And yet here we are talking about all the damage from a shutdown. And a lot of it's because technology, we're doing right. This right now. We couldn't have done this 20 years ago. Thank goodness for cell phones and remote, the ability to work remotely. But we also didn't shut down big stores. So in the United States, Walmart, Home Depot, Costco, all, all of these big Target, they were all allowed to stay open. And it was the mom and pop shops that really got shut down. And so all of those stores that were allowed to stay open, actually, those companies really benefited because their competition was told they couldn't compete. So in fact, that's one of the reasons why the stock market has done so well. So it's not a complete shutdown, but for small business, this has been devastating. It's true in terms of if you wanted to go out during the shutdown, the only places you could go that where there was anything to do was Home Depot or the grocery store. Right. And so you can see where if the mom and pop shops were shut down while these big box chains were open, right. the big box stores were open, it's been unfairly in their benefit and, and to the detriment of the smaller businesses. One of the controversial ideas that you've put forward is that the recession is over. What did you mean when you said the recession is over? Yeah, there's a couple of things that we are looking at and I'm looking at that and sort of it, I divided into two uh, different categories. One is government centric. In other words, if, if the politicians are allowing uh, restaurants to open up and have 50% capacity, if they're if we're going to open up schools, at, at least even remote learning, 
all of that increases economic activity. So as we lower the, as we reopen from a political point of view, that's going to help economic data get better. And that's why we're looking at growth in the third quarter, having a nice rebound. The second thing is that people, just individuals, we, we want to be free. And we're seeing more and more people traveling. If you look at Google and Apple, they both have websites about about traveling. Some use it by watching your location and then they aggregate that data. Others by if you're searching for a an address to go to on the map function. And and all of those show that we bottomed in terms of movement of people uh, back in April. And we're now way above where we were in January. This is the high-frequency data that you've been reporting, right. for example, uh, airlines, hotels. Yep. Um, and so can you talk about some of those? Yeah. The, it turns out we really, I, I knew some of these things existed, but we really went on a deep data dive to find as much economic information about, uh, about really about people and their actions that, that we could that comes out on either a daily or a weekly basis. Because think about GDP. We we didn't get April, May, June, the second quarter, until the end of July here in the United States. So that's all lag. But there's TSA checkpoint data for the United States, how many people are uh, going through the airport screening process. That bottomed at about 80,000 people a day. Uh, we just had a day with over 800,000. So we're up tenfold from the bottom. Now, Here's the point. It was two and a half million a year ago. So it's still one third or less of where it used to be, but it's climbing. The hotel occupancy, they report that on a weekly basis. Open table, when you make a reservation, they measure activity that bottomed at minus 100%. Literally, wow. like no activity. And now it's down about. 60% from a year ago. So that's improving. There's rail car traffic, steel production. There are a bunch of economic data. We have employment statistics, initial unemployment claims. Uh, all that stuff comes out on a weekly basis. And that's where we saw green shoots start to appear in the spring. So in May, those numbers really started to turn. And that's why we're one of the reasons we're saying the recession is over. One other quick thing, boy, there are some, there's some, we have never followed anything like we're following this pandemic. Every new case, every new death, every new hospitalization, but you can download massive amounts of data. And, and we have all these tech uh, people that they're just bringing it into spreadsheets. And one of the things we've been tracking is how many states on a daily basis, and you can do this, have seen more cases in the last seven days of COVID than they did in the previous seven days. And then we take those states where that where the numbers are going up, and then we look at their GDP contribution in the United States. So right now, there's 14 states, this is as of yesterday, that have seven-day totals greater than the previous seven days. But they're small states. Hawaii is one of them. And it's a great state. I don't mean small as it's not important. But all those 14 states, you add them up, it's only 15% of U.S. GDP. So that means 85% of GDP in the other states that aren't seeing increasing cases is actually uh, so what my belief is that the people that live in those states, they know these numbers. They may not be able to tell you them, 
but they know the news is getting better. And they this makes them uh, want to travel more, want to go out more. And, and boy, I'm in Colorado right now. And everywhere I go, there's just people everywhere. Like uh, restaurants are allowed to be 50% full, try to get a reservation. They're packed. And, and so people want out. And as we watch these numbers, what we're realizing is that 80, 90, 75% of the country on any given day is in pretty good shape. And those people are beginning to move. They're beginning to fly, staying at hotels, going to restaurants. And so that's just going to force, in spite of politicians, force the economic data to get better, even if they don't open up completely. I realize what you meant by the recession is over is that in the context of the pandemic and the shutdown, we've seen our worst days. It was interesting. I don't think we've heard it very much. And I think the idea scares a lot of people, which is that we just have to go through this thing in order to get free of it. Right. Uh, it's not going away. It's not, We're not going to be able to stop it. I think that was a remarkable thing to say, because I think a lot of people have way too much hope that some magic bullet solution will come along right. and, and solve this problem when in fact the only solution is to plod forward through it as opposed to resisting it. The cure is worse than the disease. I think you know that came out at the beginning and maybe to some degree it's being politicized. But if you really stop and think about it for a moment, it's quite true. There's a lot of truth in that statement, which is that we've resorted to draconian, over-the-top measures to combat this problem. And if we don't do something alternative to what we're doing now, economically, things could get far worse. Right. Yeah. I totally believe that. My thought about this from the very beginning, and it is, it's actually, there's a, there was a, a kind of a medical observer, a scientist in the 1800s, his last name was Farr, who observed the the bell-shaped curve that every pandemic, every virus, every bug that's contagious goes through. And it's always a bell-shaped curve. And Alex Berenson, he and I think a lot alike, what he says is a virus has got a virus. And, And the way I always say it is you can't stop a virus. And we see that Japan, they, gosh, they got their numbers way down, then they opened up and now they're accelerating. Hawaii, uh, they really shut down and now their numbers are picking up and they're an island and you have to quarantine 14 days if you travel into Hawaii from anywhere in the States or anywhere in the world. And so they have had draconian measures, like really hardcore, and yet they're still getting cases. And so I guess the only magic bullet that we might have is a vaccine, and we'll see. I'm not. I'm not a denier that we couldn't get it. And by the way, one of the pro- one of the things that happens in this whole thing is you get called a denier if if you're not willing to go along with shutdowns, and you and, and then you get you get called bad names. And I'm not. I don't believe it's a hoax. I, I I know it's real. I know it kills people. I'm not saying I don't agree with all of that. What I do believe, however, is that shutting down the economy, literally destroying someone's life's work, like they they built a small business and it's gone, is a that's that has really long term consequences and short term for the economy. And so when you have all this unemployment, we know that alcohol abuse, drug abuse, problems in the house. Now we have riots and and 
I'm not trying to make a political statement in the streets. And part of that is because people are so frustrated. And and I get it. There's other issues going on, too. But when you look at all of the costs, and, and those are short-term costs I've mentioned, but long-term, because we've just taken away a lot of the wealth of the country, and we've borrowed in the U.S. so far, and we're going to borrow even more. We've borrowed $3 trillion from our kids and grandkids in order to get through this today. And somebody has to pay that back. And so I, one of the things that I have tried to do in the last few months is, is to balance out the cost, the cure versus the disease. And where is that balance? And, I, and unfortunately, very few people are doing a true cost benefit analysis of this, of this. And I think it'll take, we have to get into the future and look back before we'll really know the true cost. So have you reached any conclusions? Yeah, I, I think Sweden did the right thing. They, they still had a big drop in GDP, but it was less than in the US, less than the UK, less than Germany, less than Spain. And, and I think they did the right thing. And I know that this is hugely controversial. And people just accuse you of wanting people to die. So far in the United States, the number 45 children, um, under, I think under the age of 14, don't hold that against me if it's 12 or 10 or something, but 45 children have died from COVID. And, and so far this year, the estimates are that over 100,000 children have died from other things, including the flu and pneumonia and child abuse and drowning and all kinds of other things. Um, and we, I think we overreacted. I, I really do. I, 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 I get it. I, I don't, I, one of the things that I think part of it is we have become so wealthy in the world that we've become scared of things and we don't always measure the danger versus the true, the fear. Like we have fear when we maybe shouldn't. It's almost like swimming in the ocean. The odds of, of somebody getting bit by a shark or killed by a shark are minuscule. And yet ever since Jaws came out, people have been scared to go in the ocean. And, and it's a, a movie. And then every time somebody gets bit, it's on the news all over the world. And so it's fascinating. And I think that that the cost, that, that in the long run, we're going to, if you think about it, we just spent $3 trillion to get through five months. And what if we need that money in five years for something way worse? Or I don't know, are we going to have another world war? Are we? And we don't, now those resources, we put them to use for this. And it was all done because of fear. And, and these models ended up being so wrong, 2.2 million Americans were going to die. And there's no way, even if we would have stayed open, that would have happened. It's, you know, any state, any data you look at, if you look at Sweden, if, there's no way that was ever true. And yet that was the number that caused us to shut down in the very beginning. And then quickly it's gone. All right. That, in fact, the doctor who, uh, the epidemiologist who came up with that, Niall Ferguson, he, he renounced it. He said I was wrong and all the data was wrong. And, and he actually ended up getting himself in some trouble. I won't, I, I don't need to uh, traffic in that, but he, he's gone. He's not even a part of the conversation anymore. And yet it was his model that caused us to do what we did. And it was just wrong. 
Yeah, it's really been an eye-opening period in time. Just you mentioned the three trillion dollar figure. Does anybody actually stop and think at what a staggering sum that is? It's equal to the amount of quantitative easing right over seven, eight years. One of the interesting things you said, I think, was that if we hadn't reacted to 2008, 2009, the way that we did or the government did and the Fed did, that wouldn't have paved the way for the way that we've reacted here. Yeah. If we look at the US and what we did back in 08, 09, almost overnight, we spent $700 billion. And back then, that was an unheard of figure. And now you look back and that's genie compared. And, and so we got into this we got into this mode of thinking we'll just spend as much as we need and people think that there are no consequences for that partly because we did it in 0809 but yes I I believe that did pave the road that's a great way to say it for doing what we did uh today and you know what and boy if you it, the loss in income, if you go from, I think in June a year ago, I believe the unemployment rate was about 3.7%. It was under a little bit under four. And today, in June of this year, it was 11%. All right. So that's a huge loss of wages and salaries. And the government pumped so much money in through unemployment benefits in the United States that we we actually added more money into people's pockets than they lost by losing their jobs. In other words, the drop in wages and salaries, more than 100% of it was made up with government money, which is borrowing from the future. It's not free. There's nothing. There's no free lunch. You, you, but we took that money from somebody in the future and we gave it to people today. And that's why right now, retail sales in the United States, and I think you can probably see data like this around the world, retail sales are up 1% in the United States from a year ago. So they're actually above where they were, even though unemployment has gone from 3.7 to 10, 11. And that's like, how did that happen? It's because we borrowed from the future. What's fascinating is because we've kept a lot of things shut down, industrial production in the United States is down 10%. So we have higher spending, more demand, and lower supply, less production. And that's a recipe for inflation. And then when you add quantitative easing in there, you get you, that's the perfect combustion of, of activity and money to create higher inflation in the United States and I think around the world. So, uh, so Brian, just to clarify, is quantitative easing still happening concurrently with the stimulus? Absolutely. Right. In fact, the Federal Reserve is, this is called, there, boy, we could have a, this, could, this is a book, this is a you know, <laughs> day-long conversation, but there's a thing called modern monetary theory. Right. I'm just going it, to, it goes deep, and I'll, but I'll give you the thumbnail 40,000 foot talking points about it. And basically what people say is, hey, if you're the world's reserve currency, uh, especially if you're the world's reserve currency, you can just print as much money as you want. You can deficit spend as much as you want. The, the central bank can actually buy the debt that the government issues, which is what the Fed is doing now. And you can do it for like that forever. And, and there aren't any bad consequences. That's basically what MMT is. And I'm not trying to create a straw man, but basically they're not, they don't worry about deficits and they don't worry about money printing. 
And my view is that's just not true. And we're going to find out that you're going to get inflation. You can't just print money willy-nilly with and have it enter the economy without getting inflation. It, it's never happened in history. So even in the United States, even with the world's reserve currency. And so when you look at what's going on today, one of the reasons that we've been able to, to get away with this is that the Fed is buying the treasury bonds so that the government can spend this money. And then they earn interest, the Fed does, and then they pay that interest back to the treasury. So you'd, you'd get thrown in jail if you did this at your own company, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's, but it, as a policy thing, it seems like we're getting away with this, but we will find out we don't. In fact, today in the United States, we got the consumer price index. Yesterday, we had the producer price index, uh, and we had the highest increase uh, on a monthly basis, 0.6% in core consumer prices. And that means we take out food and gasoline. And and I'm not trying to play games with that, but since those are so volatile, food prices and gas prices, we remove them just to look at a more smoothed out series. And it was up 0.6%. And that's the highest since 1991 in the United States. So I think we're going to see more numbers like that. You can't have demand higher than supply uh, for long without ending up with higher prices. This financial rescue in reaction to COVID, Mm -hmm. it's different from quantitative easing in that in itself, because of the sheer size of it and the amount of money that's being pumped into consumers' hands, right? it's different in that it's inflationary, whereas quantitative easing is absorbed largely by the bond purchases and the retiring of bonds, the recycling of, of paper. A lot of that inflationary pressure that people talked about 10 years ago has been absorbed by the way in which they've gone about doing these bond purchase programs and right. and. This time around, what's very different is that they've put the money straight into the consumer's hand right? in order to shore them up. I, I, it, I remember, it feels like it was ages ago, but Andrew Yang talking about universal income and thinking what a crazy idea that was. Right. And here we are. We're in the midst of a universal income program that we really have no idea when it will terminate. Right. Uh, or how and what the knock-on effect of it will be, whether it's you know inflationary or it's positive for the economy or it's negative for the economy. Right. Um, I'm sure you have ideas about that. Right. But it, that is where this rescue differs from the financial rescue. This consumer rescue is really what's leading to some of the inflationary pressure that we're starting to see that you just mentioned, the, the rise in CPI. Right. But also what's fueling interest in commodities again. Uh, The price of gold has risen. That makes for some very interesting outlook in terms of investing. It's been fairly obvious that since the financial rescue began, uh, that equities have rebounded. Maybe not all of them, but certain ones. Right. And certainly because of the theoretical outlook for inflation, the price of commodities has gone up. So can you talk about your outlook, first of all, for equities and and then uh, for commodities? Yeah, I think uh, this is, uh, obviously, it's a conundrum. How can the economy yeah. be so bad and, and stocks be so good? And I, I, we mentioned already, we talked about technology, obviously, they've taken five years of future growth, put it into five months. 
also, if you're Home Depot or Walmart, you're allowed to stay open. So Amazon clearly benefited because everybody's ordering online, et cetera. So we know why those companies have done so well, and that's obvious. And in fact, their earnings have gone through the roof. All the tech companies and those box type stores, they've had great quarters. Net, earnings are going to be down in the second quarter, but not as much as people thought, partly because a lot of it is... uh, Partly because the government's put all that money in, but also because we there's a lot of people still it's ten percent unemployment, but that means ninety percent of people are still working and they're working remotely, et cetera. And so the economy has been hit hard, but in terms of corporate profits, it hasn't been hit as hard. And then when you look at the stock market, you always have to take whatever profits are. And then you have a discount rate, right? So we, because a a dollar's worth of profits isn't worth as much if interest rates are 10%, then if interest rates are one or a half or zero, then those, then a dollar's worth of profits is worth more if a lower discount rate. And, And so we've got two things going on. Number one, profits. We expect earnings to go up in Q3 and Q4 and next year as well. And that's, I think, one of the things that the stock market is saying. But also, we have to remember that we take whatever earnings, profits are out there, and we have to use a discount rate. And the higher interest rates are, the less future profits are worth. So the Federal Reserve, by cutting interest rates to zero, pulling the 10-year Treasury yield down to 05 0.6, 0.7%, that really boosts the value of a dollar's worth of earnings, and it allows P.E. ratios to be a lot higher. Now, you can get to a place where the market is overvalued. People have worried for a very long time about quantitative easing, and they've called the market a sugar high as a result of that. And I've never, for the last 10 years, I did not buy into that because If you did that model, you take earnings and then discount them with the 10-year treasury um, and then compare what you find to all of history, we kept uh, seeing a market that was actually undervalued. It it wasn't fully pricing in that low interest rate. It, It wasn't ahead of itself on earnings. And that's still true today. My view is that the market as a whole and I'm really talking about the U.S., but I, I bet this is the case around the world, it is not overvalued today. How could the market be at a record high with the economy hurting this bad? But it, it, it doesn't appear to me that we are overvalued today, partly because interest rates are as low as they are. But even if we use a higher interest rate, the market's still undervalued because profits just didn't get hit as hard as a lot of people feared early on. In fact, if you go back to the bottom of the market in March, April is really when we bottom, the U.S. stock market was predicting an 80% decline in corporate profits. That's what we determined back using that model, but then going backwards and figuring out what the market was expecting. And that was way overdone. They're going to end up falling maybe 20%, probably a little less than that this year. So the market was way oversold in April. And that's one of the reasons why it bounced back so hard. The thing that confuses people is that we've had this shutdown, this unprecedented monster of a shutdown and restaurants, for example, are either losing money or they're going out of business and they're reopening to 25% or 50% occupancy. Right. 
And I, I think at the street level, people are having difficulty seeing like, how, how does this thing turn around? Then when you go to the sort of macro level and you look at large companies, how is it that they haven't been hurt more? I think we've covered some of that already, which is that, you know, many of them were allowed to stay open right. in, the of, in the case of technology companies, which have become more like utilities these days. They've just gone on. They've gained from it. But it's true, I think, that at the beginning of this crisis, at the beginning of this pandemic, earnings got written down pretty hard, at least all of this year's earnings. But you say it's not as it's not nearly as bad as that. Like right. the, this year's earnings are not a complete write-off. They're not as bad as they were predicted to be. But on the on the corollary that it could take up to 2023, 2024 to recover, and I, I think that's a really, personally, I think that's a really reasonable outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some folks have said even longer. So in terms of the equity market, what areas do you see being overlooked right now that are being missed? It's pretty clear that investors are, are chasing some of the high flyers like uh, right. Amazon, Apple, Tesla. You can go on a, a you know fairly long laundry list of companies that are blowing out the lights. But some of the overlooked areas that you think are opportune, what would some of those areas be or, or sectors? I, I mean, I think energy is overlooked in a big way. It's come back. I If you look at some of these oil companies, they've come back a lot from where they were. However, they're still way below their peaks. And if I'm right about inflation picking up, that's going to that's going to lift commodity prices, which includes the energy complex. And so I think they're going to they're going to do a lot better. One of the here's an interesting thing. It just depends on your view about the pandemic, all of these things. But if we get a vaccine, think about what that does to all the cyclical companies that are out there. They're going to they're going to explode because it's over and we are back 100 percent. Every restaurant is every everything. Here's one of the even if we get a vaccine, I still believe it's going to take years for us to get back to 4 percent unemployment. And one of the reasons that I believe that is this. You mentioned restaurants. There are some restaurants that maybe had cash. They were hugely successful for decades and they banked it and they wanted to survive but they're losing money at 50% occupancy. So rents are going to have to come down. I'm very worried about commercial real estate. Unless we get a vaccine and we get totally back to normal and it happens overnight. And in fact, we, I know of a few that were you know, owned by families for 30, 35, 40 years. They're, they're tired of working 13 hour days. And it's a labor of love and they were hugely successful, but they were already looking for a way to retire, get out. And then when this came along, they just shut down. And so they have a beautiful corner spot in New York or Toronto or Chicago or whatever town. And, and that there will be a restaurant in there again but not that one. Um, and so somebody has to come up with the cash and then reinvest and open. And I, I know that can happen reasonably quickly, but if you start thinking about millions of small businesses that have to find a new owner, a new investor, that takes a long time. Plus, and then nobody, no, if we've now made this normal that we shut down every time there's a new virus, that's a scary thing too, because now what do you do? You have to hold more cash. You have to you know, have more insurance. You have to, right. you know, that's what cash really is. It's insurance. So you, you're, we're actually going to change the way people operate in the future. And I think that also, that it causes some areas to grow, 
but other areas to, to hurt. So I do think the energy complex come back. I think a lot of the cyclical companies will, will do well. Manufacturing is, is coming back. I get it. President Trump put a tariff on Canadian aluminum and th- those issues are the side. But as we open up, I think all of these things will benefit. I think the rest of the market will start to catch up. The value uh, companies will start to catch up with the growth ones in the months ahead. And that's just, I'm actually a believer that we will get back to normal without, even without a vaccine, because I believe in FAR's law. I, I think in, that we've run the course. Well, now we'll, everybody says it's coming back in the winter. We'll find out. But I believe, this is my personal belief, anybody can hate me if they want for it, or they can call me whatever names they want. I'm just here to tell you what I think. Um, and that is that I do believe we've reached herd immunity in a lot of places. I think Sweden has. Uh, I, I think it's a lot lower than 70%. I don't think you need that. I think there are a lot of people that were naturally immune to this. And it's unfortunate that some groups and people weren't, but I think there were. And so I think we've reached that point. And I think people will get more comfortable. I remember 9-11 like it was yesterday. And we all remember that. And and you couldn't fly anywhere. And it just so happened that I flew on, I had a trip planned the very first day you were allowed to fly again. So it was eerie being at the airport, but there was a group of guys that kind of all gathered like in the waiting area before we boarded the plane. They're like, are you on the aisle? And like everybody wanted to be the next Todd Beamer or something. And we're going to fight them off and we're going to protect this plane. And and that happened a few times in that first couple of months. But everybody said we would never get back to normal. But last year, more people flew than ever before. So human beings are resilient. And I think we will get back to normal. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. But people are going to travel again. They already are. And when your neighbor goes on a trip and the kids are talking about it three weeks later and they had such a blast, guess what? Your spouse and your kids want to go on a trip too. And so the, the peer pressure, the, the competitive pressure among companies, Elon Musk uh, in California. So Detroit said the auto companies could open up again and they could start producing cars. California said you can't. And Elon Musk said, I'm going to leave California if you don't let me open. And guess what? They let him open. <laughs> and, and so that's the pressure. You just have competition among companies, among states, among individuals and peer pressure. And I think we will get back to normal. And what that means is that these value companies will come back. I think the estimates of the damage, I've made a case here today that we're going to, that, that we're going to pay an economic price. But I don't think it's going to happen at the stock market level. It happens more that we just have less resources in the future to fight a battle, a new crisis than we did because we overreacted to this one. But the stock market, I think, will come through just, well, it already has. No, you're right. It's to take out those high flyers, the market hasn't done as well. Uh, but it's not done as badly as everybody thought it would at the very beginning. And I think that's about to change. I think the value sector is going to catch up. So basically, you're bullish on equities. Yep. And uh, commodities. And commodities. And what's your outlook on commodities, like on gold, on, pr- on precious metals in general? And right. then beyond that, in the everyday commodities, oil, you mentioned grains. Yep. We've had such a long period where commodities have underperformed right. uh, the market. 
tremendously. And you see that we're possibly entering a new inflationary period, right? however many years out that may be, that commodities prices are set for a rebound. Yeah. And this goes back, we've already talked about this, but let me just say it the way I see it, look at it or think about it. And that is when the Fed first did, and central banks around the world did quantitative easing in 08, 09, 10, 11, 12, 13, up to really 2008 to 2015. At the same time, they did all that quantitative easing. We hammered the banks with regulation. And so what ended up happening is that money didn't get lent out and it never really juiced the money supply. So M2, uh, which is, if you... I'll just give the short definition. You can look it up. Milton Friedman told me to watch M2, but it's really all deposits in all financial institutions. So it's just all the cash that's circulating. And M2 grew 6% a year, like all through 09, 10, 11, 12, all, all the way through the, the 20 teens, if you will. And But now it's growing 24% year over year. And we haven't seen money growth like that maybe ever, but certainly not since the 1970s. And and that the 1970s was a case where commodities, and everybody kept thinking, oh, this is all about OPEC, but it was really about the money supply. And I think that's going to happen today. And I so I'm looking for a broad-based increase in commodities. Now, I will tell you that gold, it could go higher. I, it, it probably will. I'm not saying it won't. But when you look at its value today versus other commodities, it's pretty expensive and it's priced in a lot of inflation already. And so either other commodities have to come up a lot to to support the price. In other words, for every ounce of gold, historically, you get about 16 barrels of oil. Today, I I have to do the math in my head. I've done it's $1,900 divided by 42. That's a lot of barrels of oil. And so it's way more than historical. And so oil is cheap relative to gold. Copper is cheap relative to gold. Aluminum, tin, all the grains. And that, and I, and so I believe that they will, because of this general inflationary pressure that I see, I think these commodities are going to come back up. Now, that's really good for Canada, by the way. We all know that commodities and the Canadian stock market kind of move together. So that's a, I think that's a really positive thing. What are your best and worst case expectations? It's really, it's not so much that I worry about the economy, I guess. It's more that I worry about the shutdowns and I, and they go hand in hand. So if, if we were to lock down again, really lock down again, then all bets are off. We could see 80% decline in corporate profits and the market would have been right back in April. But that's the only way we're going to go back and test those lows or or even get into a bear market is if we shut down again. And I just don't see that happening. I think the pressure, it's interesting, the political pressure that is building, and I I don't want to sound like a conspiracy, I do not want this to be cynical or conspiratorial at all. But if you think about New York, they've really shut down hard. Now, now, there's lots of people that have all kinds of thoughts about why they're doing it. I, I think it's fear. And they and boy, did they get hit hard in March and April. A great many of the deaths in the United States happened right there in the Northeast. And so I get that. But even in New York, Andrew Cuomo is coming out saying schools should open. And, the, and I think the reason is that the pressure 
He went on TV and said, I need people to come back. And he's having conversations with billionaires and, and they're going, why should I come back? Well, we need your tax money. Well, I, my kids can't go to school. I can't go out to eat. I'm like, I'm not coming back. Why would I come back? And and, and then he goes, okay, we're going to open schools. And, and so what's happening is there's pressure building for them to open. That's one of the reasons why I remain optimistic. But if we reverse course, and by the way, something we haven't even talked about in here yet and that is the the political pressure on why i think a lot of governors uh, especially states like illinois new york new jersey connecticut who are in financially really bad shape they were before this all happened they have unfunded pensions they're running basically running deficits even though they're not supposed to and they're in financially bad shape and so what's interesting about that is that they want washington to bail them out and they think if Joe Biden wins the election, that the government will just give cash to states to bail them out. And and I I don't know, as we get closer to the election, I think that calculus uh, matters a lot. But I think there's some governors who are worried that'll never happen. And they, they need to open up because they need the revenues coming in, too. So my biggest fear is that we stay shut down and that we're willing to do it because we think the government will just bail us out. And then we just keep spending and spending. And then we end up with real problems like the 1970s in a way that begin to show up on our doorstep. But right now, that's a medium term problem to me, medium to long. It's not really in the next 6, 12, 18 months. Yeah, it's a weird catch-22. Children obviously want to get back to school. and But the catch-22 is that if you can't send your children back to school, then getting back to work yes. will also be uh, too challenging or too difficult to do for most families who have young children. It's really a key to the solution. But the catch-22 is that your children go to school. And what if they catch the virus at school yep. and then bring it home? There, There's a lot of uh, risk being introduced there. And that's really where the, the conundrum is for this back to school. It's looming. Well, it's already started in the U.S., but for most schools here starting in September after Labor Day, that's really causing a lot of new concerns and new fears. Right. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was that the, given the amount of payments that are being sent or were being sent, that really was creating a, a disincentive to the urgency to go back to work. People are getting more money to stay at home than they right. were getting than they were getting in their jobs. There's some people that want to make it all about politics, and and I'm just I can't I just can't go down that road. I don't want to go. Down, I don't need to. No. I really think it's more about fear. And so what's what I find fascinating is that every if you let's back up just a minute. So we shut down the economy, you can't have your restaurant open, you can't have your bar open, you can't get your hair cut, you can't do all these things. However, the what people are willing to do is they're willing to have the economy shut down, but they want to eat. So they want grocery stores open. They need gas to get to the grocery store, so they want gas stations open, which means they're perfectly fine with grocery store clerks working every day. The farmers and truckers and ranchers and packers and pickers, they're, they're perfect. If you kind of think about it, people are saying, oh, I, I, I don't want to take a risk, but I want this whole section of the economy to remain open so that I can still eat. If you really uh, believed in all this stuff and weren't I think I almost call it selfish. It's like selfish fear 
because you're saying, hey, I'm sorry, you're an essential worker. You work at Walgreens. You work at the drugstore. You work at the grocery store. You have to keep going to work, but I'm not. And what's and then you find you. I read stories in the newspaper. So you can't get it on an airplane, and you don't get it in grocery stores. And then I say, forty only forty five kids have have died, and and I believe almost every single one of them had comorbidities. But then you read a story, there's a seven-year-old and they make it headline news everywhere. So every time you think you found a, a little sliver of good news, there's a story that comes out that takes it away. Like kids are fine, but they give it to grandma. And so I, I, unfortunately, this fear has spread. And I don't blame politicians for what they're doing. When you're, When Dr. Fauci gives you a choice, either shut down the economy or kill people. What are you going to do? If you're a politician, you're going to shut down the economy because the alternative is you're going to be called a killer, a murderer. It's happening to Governor Cuomo. It's happening to President Trump. So they're using it as a political weapon. But that all came from these pandemic models and these scientists. And then the political choice was taken away. And that's why I, I can make arguments all day long. I can go yeah. on Twitter and find slivers of data and, and show stuff. But it, in the end, it really doesn't matter. Um, because- yeah, it, it's, it's, not, it's not black and white. I think that's the bottom line. It's Things have become so polarized and so politicized right. that w- there's a lot of virtue signaling. There's a lot of people pointing fingers at each other and everybody everybody wants to blame everybody else. But the reality is that it, it really should be treated as a more gray situation as opposed to black and white. We should proceed forward with caution. We should reopen with caution. We should be careful and keep going forward as opposed to standing still. Uh, Trains coming down the tracks and we're frozen with fear standing in the track. Right. And if we don't don't get moving forward, but carefully, and whatever the definition of careful is for everybody, that things will get worse just because we're standing still. Exactly. That's the thing is individuals and this is believing in freedom and the supply side, I believe in the individual. And so if your kid goes out and is at a party, you ought to know. All right. First of all, especially today. And and then put up a tent in the backyard like for two weeks. Like you go to that party, you're staying in the tent. You can't can't have it both ways. You can't. Right. Right. But but now what we want to do I like is, that. I like that by the way. <laughs> yeah, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, I, I don't want to tell my kid that. Yeah. So we have to make rules so that nobody gets to do it. And so and there are some I've been on airplanes a number of times. We had a family wedding in, in Oklahoma. What do you do? I I finally I, I travel so much back January to March. I was in 38 different cities. I, I Wow. <laughs> if I didn't get it, I, you can't get it. Like I, like I, or I can't get it. I, that's what I'm, I flew on airplanes five times a week. It was like, I travel a lot. And I look back at that. I was in New York city on March 3rd, New Jersey on March 4th. I was in the heart, the belly of the beast. I read an article yesterday that the risk of catching COVID from a flight was one in 4,400. I think it was. Right. Yeah. I saw that. That's one of those articles that I'm talking about. I'm like, how is that possible? It's like, if you can get it at a party, how can you not get it on an airplane? I, I wonder where all these studies are coming from because they're certainly not double blind tested. And they're, and yeah. I, I just, I, I find it interesting that you can get it at school, but you can't get it on an airplane. 
you don't get it at a protest, but you do get it at a pool party. And so it, I, I don't know where all these articles or studies and, and thoughts are coming from, but common sense, if you go to the airport, they make you stand six feet apart in the line uh, yeah. to go to TSA. But on each side of you, there's people going by two feet away. So everything only goes straight ahead. Yeah. It doesn't go sideways. And I just start looking at stuff like this. And I, I, I have a hard time believing those are scientifically proven facts. And I and a lot of it just and this is what I think. There's a lot, especially a lot of Americans. I don't know about Canadians necessarily, right. but we're skeptical of a lot of this stuff. And and that's why people are flying. Airplanes are packed. Like every seat is sold. Like they used to leave the middle seats open. Yeah. Not anymore. And yeah. they're all packed. And I've flown a bunch. And what, what I find fat, hardly anybody, I think people are scared to cough. But nobody's coughing anymore. I think partly we're washing our hands like crazy. But remember all these stories that you used to read? Hey, if you use that purifier, Purell, all the time, then you're not going to really be exposed to bacteria and that worsens your health over time. You need right. to get immunities. So evidently right now we're going to have a lower flu season because of the way we're behaving now. That's probably guaranteed. But either that or, or we're wiping out our immunity. Yeah, exactly. Does that yeah. mean we're not going to get immunity to things that we should? And that's we've had that debate about kids for a long time. I always said, go out and eat some dirt. Kids need to eat dirt. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, because we all did. And um, not anymore. they don't not anymore. anymore. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it, and I think it will have, see, this is one of the long-term consequences that we may face. When we look back 15, 20 years from now, we're going to find out people aren't as, their immune systems aren't as good. That's, I think, I, I'm not a doctor, but I've heard this from doctors for years. Already with the overuse of antibiotics as a society, we've created superbugs right. Right? Exactly. In, in hospitals from all the abuse of antibiotics. I like your point that there's a lot of highlighting of really bad news, and it could be one, one outlier case, but we'll latch on to that because it, it, it feeds our fear. One of the things that I have tried to do for, for the people that listen to me and that are investors and people, people that want to hear is talk about the data that we're using. And one of, the, one of the things that we know is that, for example, hospitals in the United States were compensated extra. It's a war zone pay or something for having a COVID case in the hospital. So, in fact, the number was a pretty high compensation for these hospitals. And what we were trying to do is offset the damage because they had to shut down all the elective surgeries, all the knee and hip replacements, all that stuff was shut down. And so that first CARES Act bill gave the hospitals hundreds of billions of dollars, and some of it was distributed per COVID case. Um, so that gives an incentive to label a death. COVID, even if I even heard one of the health experts in Illinois say, even if you are in hospice and you had two weeks to live and you get COVID, we list you as a COVID death. So is that really a good number to use? The other thing is that we know the tests give us false positive and, and false negatives. We just saw with Governor DeWine of Ohio, he had a positive one day and a negative the next day. And we don't know which one was right. And so we know that. We also know that some states 
And I'm not trying to blow it all out of proportion, but I think we just need to understand some states were putting antibody tests. So if you tested positive for antibodies, then they were adding it to the positive cases. And so all of these things distort the data. I'm not trying to say it doesn't exist. I'm not trying to say that it doesn't kill people. I'm not trying to say any of that. However, the numbers that we are looking at every day and making these huge policy decisions, $3 trillion of spending, the numbers aren't perfect. And I just think we need some humility about what we're doing. The way that the data is being sampled is not uniform. There's no hard, there's no hard rule about how it should be done, whether they're receiving an incentive for doing it or whether their collection methodology of that information is correct. That's going to happen globally, not just here. You pointed out that the number of deaths per million people Mm-hmm. figures were very telling right. of exactly how bad or how good things are, relatively speaking. Right. And yet these numbers don't get reported that way. They, right. It goes without saying that every death is, is a tragedy. It's what we've been going through is tragic. And we really, because we're being you know flooded every day with news about these numbers, they're, they're starting to become numbers. And it's hard not to become a little bit jaded or a little bit insensitive about what's actually going on. But at the ground level, at the, at the household by household level, it's a pure tragedy what's going on. This sickness has arrived on our shores and, and this is how we're dealing with it. But to shine a light on it, to highlight the positives is just as important as reporting the negatives. Otherwise, what, what hope do we have of going forward and saying, there's this bad news, there's some good news? I'm going to move forward because I have to. Right. Thank you for for that perspective. I think that was, uh, it's very interesting and it's very helpful. Before I let you go, Brian, are there any sort of remarkable blind spots that you see that are positive? The biggest one to me is the resilience of people. You go look at Italy, you look at, people want to get out. They want to be free. Humans are not built to socially distance. And as I look at the high-frequency data that we talked about, hotel stays, TSA, restaurant reservations, people flying, all of that stuff, what I see is that there are a, there's a huge group of people. That, that, that I'm talking more about America because that's the, the data I'm looking at, but I think it's happening everywhere around the world, that they're saying, look, I know this thing kills. It's, it, it, I, I, I know it. But there's a lot of things that do, and I have to live my life. And, and I, I just, that's the positive that I do think we will get back to normal. I, I do not think this will change the world forever. If we think of 9-11 or the Spanish flu or the Civil War, or World War I or World War II, people, there were a lot of people in every one of those cases who said, we'll never get back to normal, uh, whatever normal is. <laughs> we'll never get back to what looks like normal. And we did. And I think that will happen this time too. And so that's the real underlying positive thing that I that I believe in and that keeps me going. Because I if I thought that the world would change, the, there are quite a few people out there going, ah, you know what, we don't need restaurants. This is creative destruction. This is, we'll find a new way to do everything. I, I, I'm like, you still have to fly. You still have to drive. You still have to yeah. eat. And we spent a lot of years coming up with restaurants and bars and the ones that are successful do it really well. I, I, I just don't see Amer- I don't see the world finding all new ways of doing all that stuff. 
just because they're fearful of something that's going to go away anyway, because it follows Farr's law. I agree. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. (laughs) I'm in total agreement with you. Brian, before I let you go, Mm -hmm. I have to ask you, what have you been reading or streaming or watching, if you've been watching any Netflix or anything like that, or listening to podcasts, is there anything that you've read that really sticks out for you during this period? The one book that I've been telling everybody to grab, and it's actually an easy read. I like history, and I, I but it's, I, I think I've had, got his name, Eric Larson. I just wrote a book, it's called The Splendid and the Vile, but it's really about Winston Churchill, and it's the uh, one year of the Blitz. Of, of the German bombing of London um, and, and the United Kingdom. And it's written, he actually has pulled all these diaries from Churchill's kids and, his, and it was the, many of his top lieutenants. And it's really a fascinating book. And there's a bunch about him in there was the propaganda arm of Hitler, uh, of Nazi Germany. And Wow. You start reading about what he was saying and doing and how he was undermining. We think the Russians are messing with elections. He did it in the UK and all during that period. And it's really fascinating. It's an interesting look into Churchill. He's one of my favorite world leaders, historical leaders. And I found it fascinating. It's stuff that I hadn't read before because it's a real personal look uh, into his family and, and his inner circle. That sounds fascinating. We'll uh, we'll put up a link for it. I, I I think that was a very difficult time because Churchill was really up against the entire British government in terms right. of what he what he wanted to do or how he saw things, and maybe this propaganda had turned his counterparts in the British government right so against him. And that sounds like a fascinating read. Yep, it, it was uh, it was kind of in a way very timely because you read about Goebbels and propaganda and the the strength that Churchill showed in the face of all that bombing and the resiliency of the people of the United Kingdom. They, they would have nights where they would set cities on fire and yet they were resilient. And that actually, one of the things they had in there uh, was that the British government, and I don't think this was Churchill's invention, but they put all these people on the streets that they did instant polling like the next day or during the bomb. And they mm-hmm. and then they would report back what people had said. So it was like this army of contact tracers. <laughs> but but that the, in this case, it was just this, they would report back whether people were in a good mood, a bad mood, scared, fearful, thought the government was doing good, bad. Should they surrender? Should they not? All that stuff was, con- all that information was constantly coming in uh, to the government. And uh, it's fascinating. I guess it is. today we have Twitter. That is fascinating. Brian, I want to thank you very much. You've been very generous. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Well, thank you. Uh, we're big fans, and I hope we can do this again in the not-so-distant future. All right. Um, very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Bear. Let us know what you think about the topics we've discussed. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you have not already. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Make sure you give us a like and please, please leave us a rating and or a review. Ratings and reviews are extremely important. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll be back with you very soon. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Advisor Analyst. 
You can also find us and follow us on LinkedIn.